great time in children's church and their preschool classes. Heard you had a great time last week with Andy Glover and Greg and the worship team. Thank you to Adrian and to Larry and to our elders and everyone who helped make that service possible while I was out of town with my wife. Uh, it was a kind of late 25th anniversary getaway and uh, got to see Adam, our son, who's studying in, abroad in Spain. We, I'd never been to Spain, one of the countries in Europe I'd never had an opportunity to go to. Um, you know, traveling around with me and Kathy and Adam, none of whom speak Spanish, um, as you can imagine, was fun, exciting, and um, yeah, it was it was incredible. Um, I, I don't. I, I was amazed that how much Adam had picked up Spanish. He knew like three phrases before he went, and I don't think he speaks it well. He butchers it, but he had enough to get us around, uh, which was incredible to me that the boy could do anything, much less to learn Spanish. And so we had a great time uh, in Spain together. While we were there, we visited uh, some of the greatest cathedrals um, that I've had opportunity to see. This is the uh, Almadina Cathedral in uh, Madrid. It was built in the 18 and 1900s. It's right next to the royal palace. So if you're sitting in your royal palace, you could look right out of your throne room, literally. I'm not talking about the bathroom. I'm talking about a throne room. You could look out and see your cathedral across the square. Uh, It's quite quite a spectacular um, building uh, in Barcelona. Uh, One of my favorite places to visit was La Sagrada Familia. Uh, It is a modern cathedral. It's a neo-Gothic style, which means uh, it's got the pointed arches, and um, it's built in an old style, but new. It was started around 1900. They're still building it. Uh, It's still got about 15 more years to go, uh, designed by a Spanish artist named Antonio Gaudi. Uh, It's just an incredible Incredible building to see. It's one of the most beautiful buildings I've ever ever seen. In Seville, or Sevilla, um, that we saw uh, the Seville Cathedral, which is the third largest church in the world. It's the largest Gothic cathedral. It was built in the 14 and 1500s. Uh, in the interior of it, you could literally run a 100-yard dash uh, in the middle of the building. It's 450 feet long. Uh, in the middle, 100, almost 150 feet high, soaring heights, just a beautiful, it's where Christopher Columbus' tomb is. Uh, you can uh, see that. They're, they're just spectacular buildings. Now, I don't know from these pictures if you could notice any common theme about the design of these buildings or not. In case you didn't, all of these cathedrals and most cathedrals in the world are formed, are designed in the shape of a cross. Um, the cross is in churches everywhere. Uh, at our church, we have a cross sitting at the front. We wear crosses around our neck. We sing of the power of cross In liturgical churches, the choir and the clergy process behind a cross that is carried in down the middle of the aisles. It's one of my favorite parts of being a part of a liturgical church is that procession that comes behind the cross. Catholics use the sign of the cross in prayers. We celebrate communion, which focuses on what was going to take place on the cross, the the body that was going to be broken of Jesus, the blood that was going to be shed by him. 
Many times the cross is used as a marker in cemeteries for those who claim to be followers of Christ. Every religion, every ideology has its symbol. Um, In Buddhism, you have the lotus flower, uh, which is usually in the shape of some sort of Dharma wheel. Uh, It's thought to depict either the cycle of birth and death or the emergence of beauty and harmony out of the muddy waters of chaos. In um, Judaism, you have the two equilateral triangles that are placed upon each other, uh, one symbolizing the reign of David and one symbolizing the reign of the Messiah, who is, according to Judaism, is yet to come. In Islam, you have the, the crescent moon and star, which symbolize the sovereignty and majesty and really glory of God. Even in ideologies like Marxism, you have the hammer and the sickle, uh, which represent industry and agriculture uh, as they're crossed to signify the union of workers and peasants of factory and field. Christianity is no exception. But why the cross? There are so many other emblems that could have symbolized Christianity. Why not a manger to symbolize the incarnation that God became flesh and dwelt among us? Even like the carpenter's bench could have symbolized um, the humanity of Christ and the labor of Christ. How about a boat? He taught from a boat. He stilled the waters, the miracles, the teachings of Christ. Or an apron, a towel that he wore to wash the disciples' feet in the humility of Christ. Or how about the stone that was rolled away from the empty tomb? Or a throne. He rules and he reigns. Any of these could be chosen to represent Christ and Christianity and his ministry. But instead, the chosen symbol of Christianity is the simple cross. Why? Because Christians wanted to symbolize not just his birth or his youth or his teachings or his service or his miracles or his resurrection or his reign, but his death. We have, unfortunately, I think, become immune to the symbol and sign of the cross. We don't really get the horror that is the cross. Crucifixion was invented by barbarians, really, on the edge of the Roman and Greek empire. It was created for one purpose, and that was to kill a person as painfully as possible, that they would suffer incredibly as they died. I mean, its purpose was not just to kill someone. It was for them to suffer immeasurably. It was reserved for really the the greatest criminals. Romans would not even crucify a Roman citizen. Uh, The only ones they would crucify were non-Romans because of the horror of the way that a person died and the torture that was inflicted. Jesus humbled himself to become a man. And he humiliated himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross and the crucifixion, it's called a stumbling block to the Gentiles. To suppose that anyone crucified would pretend to be God is simply stupid at least according to the Gentile mindset. And it's a stumbling block to the Jews because anyone put to death on a tree was cursed. How could God be cursed? Yet again, we come to the place where the striking symbol of the church is the cross. The centrality of the teaching of the cross began with Jesus We're going to see that in just a moment. Carries through, through his prayer in the garden and through his time where he's crucified and then even after. On the day of Pentecost, Peter could have preached any message. But the message that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost when the church was born was the message of the cross. When Peter and John heal the beggar in the temple court and then get the opportunity to preach, once again, what do they preach? They preach the cross. Paul writes to the Corinthians, but we preach, in contrast to others, but we preached Christ crucified. Paul also writes, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And to the Galatians, he said, may I never boast except in the cross of Christ our Lord. John, in the book of Revelation, refers to Jesus Christ as the Lamb and says, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive strength and honor and glory and power and praise. The cross is the symbol of Christianity because it stands at the very center of what it means to be a Christian. Emil Bruner writes this, The cross is the sign of the Christian faith, of the Christian church, of the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. He who understands the cross aright understands the Bible, he understands Jesus Christ. In 1825, John Bowering wrote these words, In the cross of Christ I glory, towering over the wrecks of time. Do you you picture that? In the cross of Christ I glory, towering over the wrecks of time. Everything else in time is going to be considered a wreck. It's going to come, it's going to go, it's going to decay. But the cross of Christ, we get to glory. We are about, we're about to rush headlong into the Easter season. A couple of weeks from now, we'll hit Palm Sunday, and the kids will come in waving palm branches, and then we'll have Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday and Easter Sunday, and then in a blink of an eye, Easter week will be over. Too many years, I think I found myself just rushing through the Easter activities. Celebrating, but not really reflecting. For the next four weeks, I want to encourage you to meditate, to really meditate 
on the cross of Christ. Too often, we wander away from its meaning. Too often, we get too far away, I think, from the cross. Too often, the cross becomes just another symbol rather than life, rather than what it really should mean and comes to mean for us. There's an old gospel hymn written by a, a, she has a funny name. Her name was Fanny Crosby. She was a blind hymn writer, gospel hymn writer of earlier days. And she wrote these words. If you know it, you can just sing it with me. It goes, Jesus, pray today as we begin our reflections on the cross that you will indeed keep us near the cross. Lord, it's there, near that precious fountain that a healing stream is found. Lord, forgive us where we have wandered from the cross, where we've sung about the cross but not really embraced its meaning, where it's not changed us forever. Today, Lord, as we begin these weeks together, may we reflect on the glory of the cross. In Jesus' name. These are going to kind of be different sermons, in a way, because I really want us to meditate on their meaning. Many times I preach sermons that are have some sort of what I would call life application, or I try to do funny kind of humor in the middle of them, but I am struck, I've been struck over the last month, really on the fact that for many of us, we have, if you'll forgive me for saying this, we've tried to substitute the fun of Christianity for the glory of the cross. We've tried to look to the benefits rather than the foundation. Now, I'm all for the benefits. I'm all for everything that comes with being a follower of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, I'm so struck that if we try for the benefits without standing on the foundation, we are wavering. 
And for some of us, we just need to come back to the cross and to realize what took place there and what it means to me. The first thing I want us to see in this journey together is that the cross was on purpose. The cross was on purpose. Many people look to the cross and they think that it all happened by accident. That God took something really bad and made it something good. But if we look at Jesus' death merely as a result of Judas' betrayal or um, the envy of the Jewish leaders, or the spineless actions of Pilate, or of the soldiers' beatings, and the spears, and the nails, and all of that, and we blame it on any of these groups of people, then it all seems kind of involuntary. That Jesus was teaching, people got mad at him, and they killed him. But it was anything but that. In Luke 9, just to back up, look at a series of statements way before the cross actually happened. In Luke 9, verse 22, and he said, this is Jesus, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. This is before he's ever been arrested. This is before Palm Sunday. This is before any of the events that lead up to the cross. Jesus is saying early on, the Son of Man, me, I'm going to have to be put to death. But on the third day, be raised to life. A couple of verses later, same chapter. Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. Verse 45, the next verse, he says, But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. His own followers don't get it. They don't understand, oh, I'm gonna, Jesus is going to be killed. So when they head to Jerusalem for Palm Sunday, they think they're going for a coronation. They think, oh, now Jesus is going to become king. He's going to... He's going to take over like he's supposed to, like the Messiah is supposed to take over. So what do they do on the road to Jerusalem? They start arguing about, hey, when he gets to be king, who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to be at his right and his left? Remember the story? I mean, James and John are so scared to even ask and confused, they send their mommy to ask for him. Could they be on his right and left? I mean, they don't, they don't really understand what it is prior to the cross that what's going to take place. But Jesus knows. And in Luke 9, 51, he says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to Jerusalem. He set his face. Do you know what it says to me? This is on purpose. He knew where he was headed. He knew what he was going to. This was no accident. Matter of fact, in John, he says, no one can take my life unless I, I lay it down. I give it up. This is Nothing of this about this is involuntary. I'm doing this on purpose. If that's not enough, look to what it says in Revelation 13.8. Jesus is referred to what? As the lamb who was slain when? Before the creation of the world. 
before you even, before Adam and Eve even sinned, God knew what was going to take place, and Jesus had already been predetermined, predestined, if you would, that he was going to be the lamb that would be slain. Numerous Old Testament prophecies talk about the, the slaying of the Messiah. It's incredible to us that the Jewish people missed all these prophecies about the slaying of the Messiah because they were looking for an earthly king, not a spiritual savior. Rich read to you this morning from um, Isaiah 53, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, he did not open his mouth. Psalm 34:20 says, He protects all his bones, not one of them is broken. What is this a reference to? This is a reference to the cross, and that his bones, though he'll be killed, his bones will not be broken. Zechariah 12.10 says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. I mean, these predict the, the, the suffering of Christ. They predict the, they prophesy about how he'll die. They prophesy about the spear that's going to be in his side. Jeremiah prophesies about the actions involving the elders, the blood of the innocent, a potter's field, a burial place. Zechariah prophesies about someone being valued at 30 pieces of silver. Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. David says, They divide my garments among them and they cast lots for my clothing. I mean, there's so many Old Testament prophetic words that give specifics about the cross, the betrayal, the, the people involved. Jesus says in Luke 18, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. I know that I'm probably giving you a lot to digest, but I want you to meditate on this fact that what happened on the cross was not an accident. It was on purpose, set forth before the creation of the world. We'll see in a couple of weeks that Jesus is setting his face to Calvary, not merely taking our place, but here's a key thing. He was also setting for us a pattern as disciples. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? It means we set our face on the cross. It was on purpose. It wasn't just on purpose, though. It had a purpose. It has a purpose. Jesus was moving purposefully toward the cross. For all of eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had been working on this plan. Each of them had a role. I'm not going to go through all the roles of redemption for the Father and the Spirit, but the role of the Son was the cross. He was headed to the cross. It was a plan to redeem back or purchase back 
all of us from the effects of sin. I want to give you three verses, and they're in your notes, but look at these three verses on that the cross had a purpose. But he was pierced for, meaning because of, for our transgressions. He was crushed because of or for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned in his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was for us. It was for our transgressions. It was for our iniquities. It was because of our sin. The Lord laid on him what we deserved. And as a result, Isaiah says, the punishment that brought us what? Peace. It brought us peace. We get peace. He took the punishment that we deserved upon himself. Paul writes it like this, and we're going to look at Romans 3 later on in this study. But Romans 3.23, Paul says this, for everyone has sinned. Now, I could stop here. I know I do this stupid thing every so often. I say, what does everyone mean? Everyone means everyone. That means all of us. All of us have sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. How? How does he declare that we are righteous? He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins, for God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sins. Without the cross, without it, you got no hope. Without it, you can't stand before a righteous, holy God. Without it, you can't have peace. Without it, you can't have kindness. Here's the verse that I want you to meditate on for the whole next week. It's from 2 Corinthians, verse 5, chapter 5, verse 21. It says this, God made him who had no sin to be sinned for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This People, this is unbelievable. An innocent man, an innocent man is about to die. Now, this is an unusual circumstance because no matter what else, how else people have been put to death over the years, every other person who ever put to death or whoever died was not innocent. They may have been innocent of the crime that they were accused of, but they're not truly innocent. Jesus is truly innocent because he has never sinned. But he's dying with a purpose. It's hard to put. I I tried this week really thinking about it as I was coming back from my trip and had been reading some and studying. It's really hard to put into words the depth of what happens on the cross. I mean, I thought about phrases like, um, the cross is God's love displayed. Yeah, but it's so much more than a display of God's love. I thought about how it represents that Jesus became our priest 
and representative, according to Hebrews. Yet again, but so much more, because the priest offers sacrifices, he doesn't become the sacrifice. I mean, it could go on. I I went on and on. Uh, Jesus died for sins. Jesus didn't just die for sin. He became sin. And that's just where I think, this is where I think Paul really brings it home. Jesus made him who had no sin to be sin. <clears throat> Here's what I've always pictured, at t- uh, not always, but I've pictured at times, but this, this passage made it become so much more. I'm struggling with words here because I think words fall short after a while. I've always thought about my sin is laid on Jesus. You know what I mean? You know, I, okay, I'm, I, I gossip. My gossip is laid on Jesus. Um, if we steal something, our stealing is laid on Jesus. Uh, if we have lustful thoughts or commit adultery or do any other sin, we lie, whatever it is, that sin is placed on Jesus and then Jesus is killed and then my sin that's laid on him is also killed. Listen, Paul is putting it a lot stronger than that. Paul is saying Jesus became my stealing. Jesus became my adultery. Jesus became my lying. Jesus became my rebellion. Jesus became, he became it. He was made sin. Can you imagine what that must have felt like for someone who had never sinned to become sin? Not just that my sins were laid upon him, but he became that. It wasn't that Jesus just said, hey, you've done some bad things. So because you did some bad things, I'm going to die for you. Instead, he became all of those bad things that I had ever done, you, me, and everybody throughout all of time. And again, I don't know if I'm getting through to why this is impacting me so much that my Savior became all the sin of all of humanity throughout all of time on a cross and died the most excruciating, painful death. Why? So that in him, I might become righteous. So that I could stand before God clean. So I could stand before God right so that I could come back into a relationship with the God who created me. The purpose of the cross was that he was made sin so that I could be made right. He, God did this so that I could have a relationship with him. Do you think we've lost the wonder of the cross? I've been reading some stories, fiction stories, and I, I like stories. And I like stories where people who think they're not much become much, do great things, conquer kingdoms, you know, just become great in some way. But I got to tell you, there is no story like this story. Because this story is about one who is great becoming small. Some who, someone who was everything going to the cross and dying on my behalf. 
and yours. In the cross of Christ, God does two things that would be impossible to be done any other way. First, he recognizes sin and he displays and executes the punishment that sin deserves. Now, I think at times we think God is God, he can do anything, so surely he can just say, hey, poof, your sin is forgiven. No problem, I'll just overlook it. But if we know the character of God, it's not how he is. He's a holy, righteous God. Our sin deserves death. He can't just look beyond it. The punishment, the wage of sin is death. So Christ went and died for us. He took the punishment that we deserved on himself on the cross. Second, he pardons and forgives. Makes right all those who believe in Jesus. Although we deserve death, we get forgiveness. But only because he was made sin. Here's the key to all of this, really, to me. God did it all. God's the one who, who, who did all of this. This is why the gospel is such good news. It's great news. Because Jesus died for us, and those that trust him can know that their guilt and sin have been pardoned once and for all, and that because of that, we receive the privilege of relationship with God as our Father. The enemy will keep coming after you to say, you don't deserve this. You haven't done enough to get this. And you know what? Every time he does, you should say this. You're you're right. I did it. I didn't deserve any of this. But God made him who knew no sin to be sin for me so that in him I can become, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. On the cross, Jesus says these words, it is finished. The finished work of of the cross is this. There's nothing else you can do. Nothing else you can do to stand right before God because Jesus did it all for you. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain, but he's washed it white as snow. How many of us, our lives, really, I I don't know if I'm, again, I'm, I'm maybe struggling with words a little bit, but I pray the Spirit of God brings this home to you today. How many of us, our lives would be changed forever if we really grasped the glory of the cross? How many of the, how many of times has shame jumped on us and just bring us down because of a past, because of something that's happened in our life when we should be able to stand on the cross and say, I've been forgiven. Yes, I did those things. Yes, that happened in my life. Yes, that occurred. But he became sin who knew no sin so that I could become righteous. How many of us would be able to move forward in the future if we really grasped that our sins were once and all, once and for all, were forgiven? 
How many times would the accusations of the enemy fall short on us if we really heard the words, it's finished? I want to encourage you just for a moment. We're going to have a ministry time, but a moment before we pray for one another to do this, to receive what Christ has done for you on the cross. You may have been a follower of Jesus Christ for a lot of years. You may have been in church all of your life, but that doesn't mean that you are standing firmly on the work of the cross. I mean, it is inside of you, but there's got to be a time where we just really grasp hold of what Jesus has done for us. Listen, I don't know if you're like me, but I've got a lot. You know, I'm 55 now, and I've lived a lot of years, and I've done a lot of stupid stuff. I've done a lot of sinful stuff. I've done a lot of things for which, when I think back on and I dwell on those things, I really am ashamed of what I've done and how I acted. For some of us, we only got to think back to yesterday to think of things we said, things we did. But the cross of Christ covers it all. It doesn't mind me keep on sinning and glorying in your sin, but you also don't keep letting the enemy beat you up. Instead, stand on who God is, what Christ accomplished on the cross, and the power of the Spirit that indwells you to overcome. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning. We thank you this morning for the cross. Lord, I... I pray that what I've said isn't so heavy that it loses the joy that I've been made right with you. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lord, we praise you. We praise the one who saved us and freed us and made us right with God. Jesus, I thank you that you humbled yourself to become a man and humiliated yourself by going to death, even death on a cross, that you became sin so that I could become right. Lord, I pray that every person in this room will know who they are in Christ Jesus today and that the attacks of the enemy and the works of even our own flesh that stir up within us, that make us think we got to do something more, would be silenced, and instead we would just stand on the finished work of Christ on the cross. Thank you, Lord. I'm going to ask our ministry teams to come to the front and You may be here this morning and you just need somebody to pray with you. Maybe this sermon has really struck something in your heart and you would like someone to pray with you before you leave. Just to ask that God would do his work in your heart and your life based on the work of the cross. Maybe you're here this morning and you need, you're you're sick. Maybe you need healing and you'd like someone to pray with you before uh, you leave. Maybe you're asking God for a direction or wisdom. Maybe you're lifting up a burden, whatever the case may be. Just come to the front. 
Adrian's going to lead us in a song. Everyone stand up and let's let's either worship or meditate or receive prayer or be praying. Before we leave, let's just take this moment to really allow the presence and power of God to work in our lives. If you need prayer, just come right now.